Hello. Hello, Wink. Yeah. Jeremy Fennick, how are you? Fine, Jeremy. How are you? Great. I can't thank you enough, man. This is a treat, absolute treat to be able to talk to you this today. Is, this is my pleasure. Not a <laughs> treat for you, a treat for me. My pleasure. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am on the phone with the one, the only, Wink Martindale. Hey, Wink, how are you? I'm great, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, of course, uh, you have just a, a stunning career when you look at it. Uh, you you got going uh, back in the in the radio. Yeah, I uh, started radio when I was 17 years old. That was about, oh, 20 years ago or so. <laughs> <laughs> My arithmetic has never been all that great. But I started right out of high school and... Uh, it was in Jackson, Tennessee, a little town between Memphis and Nashville, where I was born and raised. Then went to Memphis to the uh, popular WHBQ radio, where the first Elvis record was played. And I was there for about eight years, and then I asked for a transfer by RKO to Los Angeles. Went out here in 1959 and uh, was on radio here, oh, from 59 at KHJ to KRLA to... KFWB, the number one rock station at the time in the 60s, and then to Gene Autry's Station of the Stars, KMPC. So I've had a great run. I feel blessed and, and delighted that I've always gotten to do what I dreamed of doing from the time I was old enough to know what a radio and a microphone were. Now, I love hearing this story. Now, coming from uh, from what I've heard from you, uh, you can appreciate this. I've had a fake radio station in my bedroom since I was about seven years old. I still have it to this day, as a matter of fact, and all of my <laughs> radio friends like to play on it as well. Uh, so, yeah. so knowing what you wanted that young in life and, and just shooting for it, not holding back, that, that's how it all happened, huh? Yeah, I, uh, I was about seven or eight years old when I realized that radio – is what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be quote unquote on the radio. And it so happens my dad was a lumber inspector. He didn't make a lot of money, but at Christmas every year he got a $100 bonus and a year's subscription to Life Magazine. So I grew up reading the pictorial Life Magazine. And I would tear out the uh, advertisement pages in Life Magazine, take them into the back bedroom of our little three bedroom house on Burkitt Street in Jackson, Tennessee, sit there, uh, pretend I was on the radio, and I would ad-lib commercials around those advertisement pages. So it helped me to learn how to ad-lib, and hopefully it uh, helped me to learn how to sell. And that's uh, that's really the way I got started uh, in, in radio. And, of course, my Sunday school teacher had helped that he ran the little 250 water there in Jackson. <laughs> uh, and uh, I pestered him to death till he finally gave me an audition. <laughs> and he he didn't know at the time I was uh, ready to do that audition that I had been practicing for years, sitting in the back bedroom reading Life Magazine advertisement pages. So when he sat me down in front of a microphone, a real microphone, and gave me some news copy off the Associated Press Wire and a couple of commercials to read, I went through those like Grant going through Richmond. <laughs> and he was shocked. He said, you come down here tomorrow, the mayor will be here. The mayor happened to own the station. He said, the mayor will be here, and if uh, you knock his socks off like you did me, then you'll get a job. So I couldn't wait to get out of school the next way, next day. And I rushed down to the radio station, did the same thing for the mayor, and he hired me for 200, uh, 200 for $25 a week. And that was my beginning in radio. Wow. that is Now cool. I'm up to 35. <laughs> You're moving up, Wink. That's fantastic. Yes, yes. <laughs> so yes. Going, 
Going back to Elvis, the night jock at the station, Dewey Phillips, was he related to Sam Phillips of Sun Records? No, no relation whatsoever. They just happened to have the same name. But Dewey Phillips, of course, did this show called Red Hot and Blue, and I happened to be there that night. Fate had me there that night right. in July 4. When Sam walked in, Dewey, Dewey had 60% of the audience at night Wow! Uh, in 1954. He was, wow. he, was, he was playing black music for white kids in those days. That was when kids were really getting into what we call race music or rhythm and blues music in those days. Sure. They were saying goodbye to Perry Como and Joe Stafford and, and all that <laughs> vanilla music that I had to play in the morning. And they were getting into rhythm and blues. Right. Sam Phillips walked in that night with an acetate. He had just cut that day with a truck-driving singer named Elvis Presley, worked for Crown Electric Company, studying to be an electrician, as a matter of fact. Wow. Uh, Sam walked in with this acetate that he had cut that afternoon with Elvis. Well, that's all right, Mama. Dewey put it on the air. Switchboard lit up. He played it seven times in a row. And I happened to be there that night. I walked into the control room, saw all of the commotion and the excitement. And uh, Sam happened to have Gladys and Vernon's telephone number, and I was the one designated to call Gladys and find out where Elvis was because Dewey wanted EP to come down to the radio station, naturally. He wanted to put him on the air. So uh, I called, and Gladys and Vernon were listening. They were hearing the excitement. And she said, well, he was so nervous about his record being played for the first time. He went to see a double feature. He's at the Suzor's Theater over on Western Street. So they got in their truck. They went down, walked up and down the dark aisle. Here's Elvis sitting all by himself in the movie theater watching a Western. They whispered to him about the excitement. They came down to the radio station on South Main Street there in Memphis. Mezzanine floor, or as Dewey used to call it, the magazine floor of the Chisco <laughs> Hotel. And uh, that's the night I met him, and he remained my friend till the day he died. And, of course, we all know what happened that night. I had no idea that music was changing before my very ears. Right. Uh, music changed that night and was never the same again, Jeremy. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, speaking of music, uh, it may be a spoken word song, but you had a top 10 hit yourself on the Billboard Hot 100 with the Deck of Cards. Yeah, that uh, went as high as number four. Uh, I happened to be a friend of Randy Wood, and he, he, had, he had been a guest on my teenage dance party in Memphis one Saturday. And uh, his minister and my minister uh, were the same. And so we went out to dinner that night, and he said over dinner, how would you like to be on Dot Records? Because I had a local contract. I, I was, that, was, that was in the days when Elvis made it big, and everybody thought they could be a singer, and I was just one of those. Right. I wasn't a very good singer, but I made a record for a local label. <laughs> and so uh, it did fairly well, because I was a you know, popular personality in, in Memphis. Sure. And uh, he said, would you like to be on Dot? So what he did was he paid $25,000 to buy my contract from OJ Records there in uh, Memphis, put me on dot, and when I came out to California in March of 1959, one morning he called me up to his office at Dot Records on uh, Vine Street there in Hollywood, and he said, I think I've got something for us to record. And he put on the turntable a scratchy old 78 RPM <laughs> of a narrative called Deck of Cards by T. Texas Tyler. It had been a hit, and he remembered this from right after World War II, 1946, because he had Randy's record shop in Gallatin, Tennessee, where he used to put together record packages. And he remembered all the sales that came in for this country record, Deck of Cards. Story about a soldier who used the Deck of Cards in church because he didn't have a Bible. Wow. And so put it on the turntable, and he played it, and 
regardless of what it was, I was determined. I was going to say, Randy, I love it. Well, when he played it and I heard this scratchy narration, uh, I thought, who's going to buy that? In 1959, at that time, the top record was Stagger Lee by Lloyd Price and Venus by Frankie Avalon. Right. I said, kids buy records. What kids are going to buy a semi-religious talking record? But sure enough, when it was over, he took the needle off. He said, what do you think? I said, Randy, I absolutely love it. <laughs> that is cool. That is cool. Told the little fib. But sure enough, uh, <laughs> within a couple of weeks, we went into a studio, Master Recorders, on Melrose in, uh, in Hollywood, and uh, recorded this uh, narrative with a, a choral group behind me and sort of made a pop version of that old country hit. And uh, I had no idea that it would uh, do anything uh, because, you know, rock was really going strong then. Sure. But sure enough, they put it out. <laughs> and by September, uh, a jock in Boston, Bob Clayton, played it one morning on his number one top-rated show. And the switchboard lit up. And it spread like wildfire across the country to the point that by November, it was in the top ten on Cashbox and Billboard. It had sold over 700000 And lo and behold, we got a call for me to come to New York to perform it on the Ed Sullivan Show, wow. which was, of course, the one variety show at the time. So I flew back there and uh, did it on that show. And then that, was, uh, that put it over the million mark, that appearance. And uh, it's it, it's a record that has followed me my entire career. I still have people to this day, Jeremy, who say to me, are you the same Wink Martindale who recorded that record, Deck of Cards? And my answer is always the same. I say, do you think there are two people walking the planet with a stupid name, a silly name like Wink Martindale, who recorded... <laughs> and it's always good for a laugh. Absolutely. By the way, my real name, my actual name given to me by my mom for Winston Churchill is Winston, and my middle name is Conrad, and that was uh, named for a, an, an old, uh, old uh, a 1930s, 40s popular actor that, she, that my mom loved, Conrad Nagel. So I'm Winston Martindale, Winston Conrad Martindale, and a kid in the neighborhood that I used to play with, Jimmy McCord, he was seven or eight years old, and he had a speech impediment, and he couldn't come up with Winston correctly, and it came out sounding like Winky. So I became the Winky Martindale of the neighborhood. Oh, wow. And, of course, when I got to Hollywood in uh, 1959, you don't walk down Hollywood Boulevard with a name like Winky. Right. <laughs> so I just shortened it to Wink, and it's been my, uh, it, it, it served me well. It sticks, it pops. What a fantastic name. And uh, so you did transition uh, big time, really, to the television over at uh, HBQ. Uh, before Teenage Dance Party, though, it was... Mars Patrol, how cool is that? Yeah, uh, I had just gone to WHBQ from Memphis, and my dream job uh, when I was a kid growing up on the radio in Jackson was to do a show called Clock Watchers, which all the kids in Jackson listened to because WHBQ radio came into Jackson like a local because it had 5,000 watts and it was clear channel. So we all listened to WHBQ, and my idea was to get Clock Watchers. Well, sure enough, I auditioned, got the job, I became the host on Clock Watchers, and uh, I hadn't been at WHBQ Radio for more than, I guess, six months. Uh, they were getting ready to go on the air with WHBQ Television, and a gentleman named Mark Forrester came to me, along with my mentor, Bill Grumbles, who had given me my job at WHBQ, 
And uh, they both came to me and said, how would you like to be on television? And I said, what? I just wanted to be on the radio. I never <laughs> thought about TV. You know, it was still early. We're talking about 1952-53. And uh, they explained they had this idea for a show called Mars Patrol, uh, where the host, who ended up being me, Wink Martindale, yes, that's you. of the Patrol, uh, <laughs> I, would, I would sit there with my six little six- and seven- and eight-year-old Mars guards every day awesome. on this airplane, in these airplane seats, that uh, set that was made to look like a little spaceship. And uh, we, I'd talk to the kids every day for a few minutes. We'd drink our Bosco and milk, and then we would blast off into outer space and segue into those old Rocky Jones Space Ranger uh, movies. Awesome. Those B-movies that used to uh, <laughs> be seen as serials uh, between features on Saturday afternoons. Right. And so uh, that was, it became an overnight hit. The kids loved it. And I did that for uh, a couple of years. And uh, it kind of played itself out, but it was enormously successful. And from that, that was when Dick Clark was going strong with American Bandstand. And again, Mark and Bill came to me and said uh, they wanted me to host Top Ten Dance Party on Saturday for 90 minutes, sponsored by Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. So I did that. Oh, yeah. And so, and so I did both of those shows that were tremendously successful, and then I, uh, I did Dance Party until I uh, left Memphis to come out here in 1959. And at KHJ, which was another RKO station like WHBQ, they put me on the air in the morning and gave me a dance party show on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> so I started my I started my career all over again. <laughs> That's awesome. So as far as uh, as far as the show goes, Mars Patrol, are you a sci-fi fan? No, not at all. I've never been, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember I used to I used to buy any magazine or any newspaper or anything anything I could, I'd go to the library and try to read any any kind of sci-fi books that I could come up with just to just to make notes and I'd slap these notes on cue cards and I'd paste them all over the walls so that when I was talking to the kids I used this this uh, quote unquote sci-fi language so that they really thought that I knew what I was talking about. Show prep, my friend. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you really got into the game show scene uh, with, with what's that song words and music. How are you at music trivia? Uh, I've always been pretty good at music, fairly good at music trivia. Now, don't you put me to the test, because <laughs> as sure as you ask me a question, I won't be able to answer it. But as, as a DJ, you know, from playing records, you, you, you learn so much about records. When I was a DJ in Memphis, for example, in my early days out here, but back there in Memphis, when I used to, you know, run my own board, I didn't have an engineer, I ran my own board, and I, we played 45 RPM records. And you'd cue them up, and you'd look at the label, and you you, you memorized uh, you memorized the, the publisher. You realize you memorized the name of the person or persons who wrote the song. Uh, of course, the artist on the song, the, the year it came out, the month it came out, where it went on the charts. You just naturally, uh, you know, learned all of that by playing these records over and over and over again. So I I've always been pretty good at music trivia. And it was amazing that the first show that I did in the game genre was What's This Song at NBC. It only lasted a year, but it got me launched into the world of game shows. 
That's amazing. Now, of course, uh, Gambit was probably the, the big major break. Uh, but I got to say, I grew up, my, my, my big favorite is, is Tic-Tac-Doe. I mean, there's a very special place, obviously, in my heart for that one. What of all of your, the, the shows that you've hosted is your favorite? Well, I think I'd have to say Tic-Tac-Doe simply because it was a show that I did longer than any other. I did it almost 12 years. Right. And uh, it was enormously successful. It was that period of time in television where we had an access time period every night from uh, either 6.30 to 7.30 or 7 to 8, depending on what time zone you were in. Right. But we were back-to-back with a show called Joker's Wild with Jack Barry. And uh, this was before Wheel of Fortune and uh, Jeopardy came out. Sure. And uh, we were the first ones to become really popular in that uh, what was called the prime access time period, which is that hour just prior to the network time period that began at either 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock. So uh, the show just became enormously successful, and uh, there was a time like in Philadelphia, we had a we had a share of audience there, like 40% of the people watching television were watching Tic-Tac-Doe. That was uh-huh. our best market in the entire city, in the entire country. Wow. But it was a great show. And, of course, when you ask me which is my favorite, not only did it last longer, but, you know, you get used to those checks coming in on a regular basis. <laughs> so it lasted the longest, and it paid It paid for my house right. and a couple of cars. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that's another reason that Tic Tac's always been my favorite. But I loved Gambit. And, of course, I don't know whether you were going to ask me or not, but the reason I got into the game show world was uh, as a disc jockey at KFWB uh, in the early 60s, I used to get off the air and rush home at noon to watch a show called Password with Alan Ludwig. Oh, yeah. I I became addicted to Password. Such a simple but such a fun game. And uh, I used to, you know, I used to test myself to see how I would do. Well, I became addicted to that show. And I did some research, and I found that Alan Ludden came in two days a week, knocked out ten shows, and the other five days he played golf. And I said, man, that ain't a bad way to make a living. <laughs> I went to my agent, Noel Rubeloff, and I said, Noel, you know, I've never really thought about being a host for game shows, but Alan Ludden uh, is doing one called Password, and I love that, and I think I could do that kind of work. So he sent me on uh, a couple of auditions. I didn't get them. But I think it was on the third one that I got a local show called What's the Name of That Song here at KTLA in Los Angeles. Right. Which later uh, became What's This Song, so it would fit into TV Guide as a title. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I did that for a year, didn't make it past a year, but he got me launched, you know. And right. then after that, I, I did several shows, and then in the uh, late 70s, started doing Tic-Tac-Doe, and there was a period of time there where I just went from one show to the other. I did a show most recently called Debt, where we paid off yep. young people's credit cards. And then I did a show called High Rollers, yep. which Alex did uh, in the beginning uh, first, and then I, I did it later. And I just heard a rumor recently that they're going to bring High Rollers back on NBC Nighttime. Are you hosting I don't know it? Whether... Tell me you're hosting it. <laughs> no, I wish I was. But I just heard the other day that I don't know whether it's a rumor or not, but I would love to host that show again. That would be so much fun to watch. So let me ask you this. Uh, 
when you're sitting there uh, watching, flipping through the, 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 you mentioned Password. That's fantastic. What are some of your favorite game shows to watch? Well, I love Match Game. I, I think that I don't necessarily like uh, what they've done with it nighttime uh, on the network because it's it's uh, double entendre and it gets gets kind of raunchy at times. Right. But uh, Gene, when Gene Rayburn did it, uh, to me that was the heyday of the match game, and I love that. My favorite game show host of all time, and a guy that I think is the best ever, was the late Bill Cullen. Oh, I love Bill. Bill Cullen had a wit and a charm about him uh, that was just, just fantastic. Of course, you know, people like Bob Barker and Alex Trebek and Pat Sajak, they all have their own qualities, but uh, Bill Cullen could do it all. And doggone it, if it hadn't been for those cigarettes, uh, right. he used to smoke Three packs a day, and and that's what that's what took him took him out. But oh wow! If it hadn't cigarettes. Hopefully, he'd still be around hosting game shows. Boy, but I like game and and uh, several other shows. I love Jeopardy. I think Jeopardy is probably the best idea for a game show ever. I'll give you the answer. You give me the question. <laughs> I mean, how do you beat that? <laughs> That is awesome. Now, uh, you've worked on a lot of different sets over the years, and that's another thing that I study. Uh, just I, I'm a, a game show geek. Watching the set of Match Game evolve uh, over the years is pretty neat. Family Feud, another one from uh, the, the pilot episode to, to what it is today. Tic-Tac-Doe, in its day, if I'm not mistaken, you guys were ahead of the times. Wasn't Tic-Tac-Doe the first game show to use a computer as part of the game? That's right. We used it. In fact, when we first started uh, Tic Tac Doe, uh, we did a pilot, and then uh, it sold to. We did a pilot for CBS, and the amazing thing about Tic Tac Doe, before I get around to uh, the computer thing, we did this pilot. Uh, it got on CBS and was on at 10 o'clock in the morning, and only lasted for 13 weeks, and it got canceled. It never found an audience. But the stations that had bought it, the CBS affiliates that had bought it, had also bought what was going to be a syndicated version that would debut in the fall of that same year. So they were locked in in September to put Tic-Tac-Doe on as a five-night-a-week show in that prime access time period. Right. And a lot of station managers and a lot of program directors were pulling their hair out because... Here they were committed to a lot of money to carry this show called Tic-Tac-Doe, which didn't even make it past 13 weeks on CBS. Uh-oh. <laughs> for some reason, God only knows why, I don't, but I've always been delighted that this was true. That show went on in September of that same year after being canceled after 13 weeks on CBS. September it went on the air, and when the first book came out, the first book of ratings, for that fall, it went through the roof. Wow. People just caught on to it. I don't know whether it was because it was morning uh, or nighttime compared to the morning slot on CBS, but at uh, 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, uh, we became the thing to watch while people were having dinner. It was amazing. And those shows used those old computers. Each of the numbers, each of the nine squares were, were those those. Uh, uh, computers that were the first ones that came out, and they would break down during taping so many times. We really? had to stop. Oh yeah, they'd break down, and and we'd sometimes we'd have to stop tape for for thirty, forty minutes to an hour 
to bring in, replace one computer with another. Because, you know, they would get hot. Right. And, and remember, this is the early days. Of, it's not like it is, not like computers today. Uh, but uh, it all worked out. And uh, from one season to the next, we kept upgrading the computers so that we didn't have that problem. But in those first couple of three years, we constantly had problems <laughs> with those computers that, uh, that held those uh, those numbers and, and the words tic-tac-toe, and, of course, the dragon in the center. The dragon. Oh, I was I had nightmares about that thing when I was a kid. So what were some of your favorite sets to work on? I mean, like I said, you, you mentioned that your father was in woodworking. The woodworking on the tic-tac-toe set was just beautiful, just a beautiful set. Uh, what were some of your favorite sets to work on? Well, uh, tic-tac, of course, would be my favorite, but my second favorite, I think one of the best sets ever was the one for high rollers. That was a cool set where we had all these big electronic numbers and you know you had to knock off numbers to get rid of all the numbers to to win on that game and uh, we had this big uh, big uh, crap table uh, with the automatic device where, where I could bring the the dice back in to roll them again it was just that was at CBS and it was just the set uh, in person was enormous and it looked enormous on television, yeah, and the colors were so vivid. It was so such a colorful set. So when you ask me what set stands out in my mind of sets that I've done, it would be High Rollers. And on other shows, I think the set for Family Feud to this day is uh, just terrific. It is a fun set. I, that's, that's another one of my absolute favorites. Uh, so here's a fun question. When you're watching Tic-Tac-Toe and you hear that music and the contestants come out, and uh, whether it be Jay Stewart or Charlie O'Donnell is introducing the player, what are you talking about? Was that just just some little small talk banter? or uh, Just small talk, you know. We're probably talking about what we're going to say when we actually get on camera and, you know, find out a little bit about them, where they come from. I always... I always looked forward to that period uh, just before we started the game where I had the opportunity to chat for for 20 to 30 seconds. You always want to get into the game, so you never like to take a lot of time, you know, talking to contestants. Hopefully they'll be on long enough that you can learn more about them as the game progresses. Uh, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me, and uh, I guess the funniest thing that ever happened to me, in terms of contestants. Uh, in the fall, we used to do what was called an over-80s tournament, where on Tic-Tac-Toe, all the players were over the age of 80. And uh, I had a contestant on one time, Dr. Reba Kelly was her name. She was 93 years old. She was a widower, of course. And I was talking to her, and I said, Dr. Kelly, at your advanced age, do you ever think about dating anymore? Just, you know, just making up a question to ask, <laughs> and she was ready for me. I don't know whether the producers gave her the answer or whether they knew what I was going to ask her. Sometimes we did plan some questions and answers. But uh, she came back to me. She said, yes, Wink, as a matter of fact, I have four boyfriends. I said, really? <laughs> she said, yes. I get up in the morning with Will Power. I take a walk with Arthur Itis. I come home with Charlie Horse. And I go to bed at night with Ben Gay. <laughs> oh, that's delightful. So you've got it. Those, those contestants definitely have to stick out. Now, on the inverse of that, 
Has there yeah. ever been a contestant that you were, you know, I don't know, maybe rooting against? <laughs> no, never, never. I, I, uh, I was never for or against. You were always uh, just making it go. I was always I tried to be uh, as as in the middle as possible because it wouldn't be fair to be for or against a contestant. It was just my job to keep the game rolling, uh, keep the rules straight and erect, and uh, keep the game moving forward to that final minute. So I never uh, – we had one player who was on once. for I became a close friend and still – I'm a friend to this day. Tom McKee was our biggest winner ever uh, on Tic Tac Doe. He was on for 47 straight days. I remember that. $317,000 in cash and uh, eight automobiles. Wow. Eight viewing. He, uh, he gave one to his uh, missionary brother in Africa, and he took the other seven, sold those, bought himself a Mercedes, and to this day, he still has the personalized license plate back east called Tic Tac. <laughs> <laughs> and he still comes out here and plays golf in the fall and always invites my wife Sandy and me over to, uh, to join he and his wife for dinner. So I still see Tom McKee. But I never, you know, even, even at the height of his success, when our ratings went through the roof, I mean, every night it would be Tom back, and everybody wondered, is he ever going to lose? He... He just knew so much about trivia. He had so much knowledge about so many different, uh, uh, differing subjects. But uh, even at the height when he was popular, and I was hoping he would stay on because our ratings were just going through the roof, uh, I still didn't pull for him. I would ask him, you know, whatever question came up for him yep. was that question. And whatever question came up for his opponent was that question. And finally he did, he did get beat one day, one night. That's insane. That is crazy. So let me ask you this. Uh, when you're watching, uh, obviously you have people that can go that long, 46. When you see something like a Michael Larson uh, who figured out how to beat the pressure luck board, uh, when you're on a game show that's on the air, when that kind of thing is going down, do you and the producers like kind of look at the show and make sure that it's bulletproof? Not that anyone could really cheat on tic-tac-toe, but what, was, what were you guys thinking when that was going down? We were just... Uh... We were excited about uh, the fact that Tom was, uh, he, he was in the Navy uh, down in San Diego, and he used to come up every week from San Diego. He'd get, he was a lieutenant in the Navy. Uh, uh, he was a pilot, and he used to come up here every uh, weekend for our taping sessions at CBS. And uh, I remember asking Dan Enright, I said, Dan, what was so special about Tom McKee? And Dan would say, our producer would say, he, he's, the, uh, he's the ultimate contestant. He wears the, the uh, colors of our country, the uniform of our country, the Navy. Uh, he's a handsome dude. He knows so much about trivia. He has a beautiful wife who sat in the audience for every taping. Her name was Jenny, and she just happened to be pregnant. So uh, he was the consummate uh, game show contestant, and we were play when we were playing, and he was kept winning and winning and winning. Uh, all we were thinking was that uh, this is going to come to an end one day, and the question is when. But uh, as long as it continued, and he was a, a winning player, we were happy about that because, as I said, it kept our ratings going upward, upward, upward. 
But uh, we knew it had to end sooner or later, but it never, you know, Tic-Tac-Doe. Uh, Barry and Enright, those two producers who produced uh, Tic-Tac-Doe, had gotten swept up in the game show scandals back in the uh, late 50s mm. when when answers were actually given to players. Oh, I uh, remember that. Yeah, and of course, uh, law came down that that couldn't happen anymore. And I've often said that... Uh, if that ever happened again, it would take game shows off the air for all time. But uh, I don't think I don't think in this day and age that that could never happen uh, again. So from behind the scenes and in front of the camera, you've you've really done it all, Wink. Do you prefer producing shows or do you really like hosting it a lot better? Oh, I like hosting because I like to be uh, on camera. I like to uh, do what I do. Uh, but I also enjoy producing because it gives you the chance to show what creative skills you have. In fact, when I uh, uh, get off this phone call, my uh, partner and I, John Ritchie Jr., and I have a meeting at Endemol, one of the biggest producers in the in the world. Uh, we're we're uh, uh, we're uh, pitching two game show concepts to them this afternoon, and uh, I still enjoy that and still enjoy the 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 thrill of, of Putting the pieces all together, coming up with a concept and making it work, making it, making it something that a player likes to play and a viewer likes to watch. That's just, to me, the ultimate. But again, I enjoy, so I enjoy being before the camera and behind the camera. Now, one, uh, one final question here before I let you get going here. I, I, I love Gene Wood. Don't think he got enough credit. Who are some of your favorite game show announcers? And I'm going to give you a few seconds to think about that, Wink. <laughs> That sounds just as good now as it did back then, I got to tell you. (laughs) Jay Stewart, Jay Stewart uh, was one of our first announcers on Tic Tac Doe. I love Jay. He was an announcer on a lot of different shows. But uh, I think my favorite announcer from my standpoint is a guy who used to be uh, Dick Clark's right-hand man on the old American bandstand. You know who I'm talking about? Oh, it's at the tip of my tongue. Charlie O'Donnell. Yes, 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 yes. Charlie O'Donnell was with us on Tic-Tac-Doe as the announcer longer than anybody else. I remember. And to this, this day, we lost him far too soon, but to this day, he still stands out in my mind as being my favorite. Well, I tell you what, Wink, when you sit and look back at the classic game shows back in the day, you, you see where game shows are now. Uh, there's definitely two different types of hosts, and I think you are the beautiful bridge between the two. You know, watching you when I was a child, it was just, you were you were like part of the family, like the friend that everyone wanted to talk to. You were just very warm, very inviting. And uh, like I said, as starstruck as I was uh, when I first dialed your number here, I, you're just so inviting and so I feel so comfortable talking to you and I think that really comes through on the camera and why uh, you've been so successful throughout your career well thank you Jeremy I appreciate that uh, here's the way I look at it God gave me the opportunity to do something that I wanted to do from the time I was old enough to, to know what a microphone was uh, <laughs> God only knows uh, you know what I would have done had I not been a game show host. I think having well looking back now and knowing how big sports are in today's television world and radio world, mm-hmm. I think that had I known that I might have been in, uh, gone into sports casting because I'm a big sports fan. 
But uh, I feel very blessed. God's been good to me, and I thank him every day for giving me the opportunity to do what I've done for this low these many years, and also give me the opportunity to continue doing People ask me now, do you ever think about retiring? And I use an old Art Linkletter line. Somebody asked Art Linkletter that one time, one of my favorites, and, of course, one of the greatest of all time. They said, Art, do you ever think about retiring? He said, retired from what? Hell, I'm not tired. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way I feel. I feel so blessed that here I am still straight up and still going strong. And you're sounding great. Um, real quick, do you did you ever get to play the Beat the Dragon game? No, I did not. You never got to play. Would you like to? Sure. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and shuffle these categories. And you know how it works. We've got the numbers one through nine up on the screen. You get tick and tack, you win. You get a thousand, you win. You don't hit the dragon. Wink, where would you like to go? <laughs> I'll go top right. Top right. That would be number three. 400. You're off to a pretty good start. Wink, where would you like to go next? Uh, let's go to the center square. Center square. 150. You're up to 550. Halfway there. Just over. What's what's next? Okay, let's continue that diagonal uh, streak and move to the bottom left. Number seven. For 500. And you did it, Wink. You defeated the dragon and you made it big. Congratulations. <laughs> Now, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be embarrassing if Wink Martindale didn't win his own game? <laughs> I had my fingers crossed that whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Where was the dragon, by the way? Let's see. The dragon was hiding uh, under number two, top center is where he was hiding that time. <laughs> That's why I stayed away from number two. <laughs> Wink Martindale, you have made my life. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to talk to you. What good advice would you have for somebody who wants to be a game show host one day? Well, I would give the advice to get as much education as possible. I know it's not always possible for everybody to go to college, but uh, the more you uh, the more you learn, the more you know, the more you're going to, uh, I think, uh, uh, be experienced in all phases of life and all subjects. So learn as much as you can, and uh, uh, hopefully, it helps to be a people person. I think that. Uh, if you're a people person, you like people, you're going to do better. And uh, that's about it. I, you know, there's no, there's no magic wand to, to doing what we do. It's just, uh, you know, like any other job, really, you just do the best you can and work at it and, and, and try to become as proficient as possible at it. And Wink, okay, I'm a huge fan, so you've got to have some collectibles. Is, is there a, a place people can go to, to purchase a piece of history, if you will? Yeah, a lot of different things that I have, my book and uh, recordings that I've made at winkmartindale.org. Anybody who wants to know more about me, uh, my bio is on there. If anybody cares to know more about Wink Martindale, I don't know who that would be. That would be but me. But if they like <laughs> to winkmartindale.org or winkmartindale.com, either one. That's fantastic. And I'll get a link to that at my website, jeremyfennick.com. So it'll be one big digital family. I love it, Wink. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. It's been my pleasure.